So just to then ask, I mean, this, this, this touches on two things and I, it touches on academic freedom, the precarity of the state of academic freedom. We know that there's been a severe crackdown in Turkey, uh, recently since the attempted military coup as well. Maybe we should transition there to get, before we get back to the campaign about your release. Just about, you know, we're in, we're in a situation even now. Um, looking at now the Trump administration, the United States, that there is a heightened scrutiny of what academics are doing. Um, and, and there, you know, we've seen academics be punished by certain, uh, special interest groups. We, you know, most notoriously the re- rescindment of tenure for Professor Steven Salaita for participating in public discourse. Uh, around issues of relevance and specifically uh, Israel's uh, brutal onslaught against uh, the Gaza Strip in 2014. But this precarity is across the board uh, and it tells us something about what we should be doing now to insist on academic freedom and what that means, that not to also romanticize it, um, but also what that means it, it politically for us. Do you have, I mean, as somebody who's who's been targeted specifically for this, do you have thoughts on that? Well, certainly. I mean, academic, um, there are two things I did while I was in in um, Evan prison. One, the first thing was on the third day of a lot of these shouting matters and screaming and accusing me of being a spy for for um, United States and being trained by MI6 and CIA um, and being paid by them. Um, I came back and I thought, okay, I'm an anthropologist. I'm here in Evin. Um, my method of the most um, important method of anthropologist is participant observation. So I will um, treat this, my detention as a field work. So I I did that, and I, I basically look at it as a research project. So that helped me in terms of my survival strategy. The other issue that I reflected on a lot was academic freedom. And one of the concerns is for me was, yes, I was um, upset about not this, this freedom, um, academic freedom being questioned, but then I also realized uh, in the whole of my university education in Britain and and here and teaching, we always assumed we have the academic freedom, but we didn't ever discuss it or study it or make it as a subject of our uh, interest. It was a right we assumed. I think that is an important factor. A lot of time also academic freedom is treated like an import from the West because we haven't historicized it. We forget that uh, within the Muslim context, there were always intellectuals who were, some lost their lives because of their views. Other people had to continuously um, be on exile, uh, going from one country to the next. And uh, it's because they didn't want to give up their ideas. So this, we have kind of been divorced from this academic and the struggle to, to get academic freedom. And just by assuming it and not guiding it and not protecting it, we are now losing uh, losing it a lot more as the states become more oppressive. That is true for the Middle East. But of course, as you said, it's very true also for, for the Western context, but especially these days, United States. 
and so I think academic freedom is is certainly one of the important aspects. Just as we are looking and trying to protect democracy, we also have to question what do we mean by uh, academic freedom. I mean, one of the other problem is a lot of people treat, have treated first the academic freedom as a privilege and also as individual right. To me, academic freedom is is a collective right, and unfortunately, I think we have maybe overlooked. This and we have just taken it for granted that we have academic freedom. Academic freedom is not an individual privilege, and is uh, and we have to um, be aware of its history its, uh, and what we have. And of course, as I said, it's also like it has a responsibility that goes hand in hand with it. If we just take it as an individual privilege and don't don't try to historicize it. We will lose it as the states become more oppressive, whether it is in the West or whether it is in the Middle East. In some contexts, of course, is more oppression than others. But I think it's very important that we look we look at academic right in different contexts, historicize it in different contexts, and have a discussion about it continuously. It is like any democratic rights. If if you don't um, protect it, you lose it. And we tend to, uh, if we don't protect collective rights, often then gets lost in in a way much sooner. Because if if we don't treat that losing the rights of one individual is is an attack on on a collective, then this breaks that com- a collective aspect of the academic right, and it it become much easier to to then deny academic freedom, especially to social sciences. Yeah, I think I think that's a really good thing to consider and for us to think about that the one way not to take it for granted is is not to conceive of it in a monochromatic way, but by placing it in particular context, what it means in each context. So for example, you know, I'm in the North American context and and one way that you know, our ac- academic freedom is in, encroached upon is, is not even by some extra- external intervention, but some sort of learned behavior where scholars begin to police themselves so that there isn't ever, you know, a, a direct confrontation, but it just becomes an internalized norm of both what will be rewarded and what will be punished, uh, what, what funding there is uh, available for which uh, fields of study um, and, and, and that has very deep, you know, implications beyond the more just very blatant, obvious attacks that also do exist. Um, I gave Salaita as one example, but he's certainly also one of many, um, though I think incurred a much more severe, uh, consequence. Um, so just to move us, um, kind of back into, into your campaign and the fact that it wasn't, that you were not alone in this condition of, of captivity, what set you apart uh, that, that actually ensured your release? Um, and I know that there was a robust campaign for you. Do you think that that was, that that was what it was? Is, uh, is that the reason that you were able to, to be free? Yes, that certainly played a major role. It played a major role because then encouraged also Canadian government to take much more active role in discussing that. But the other thing is, um, is in my case was that the support came from academic community, but also came from several different sources, like it came from 
the left and the right, the Islamic scholars and the secular scholars, and also came from uh, women's civil society and particularly from the feminist movement. And usually you get one, pe- most people get one sort of support. And in this case, I got support from women in Indonesia and Afghanistan, in Pakistan, in in Korea, in Jordan, in in Egypt, uh, and of course the Western uh, from Senegal and Nigeria. So the fact that I didn't necessarily just get support from one sort of people, I think had impact on on the way Iranian looked at this campaign, and of course it, it helped me and 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 that they they couldn't just say you know you are a western darling you are obviously there were many people and many people whom they they were they consider ideological allies especially amongst the muslim scholars had signed a petition and have written letters and op-eds in my case so that was kind of was unusual for them and that encouraged them to be a bit more lenient but in any case they did not drop the file. They just let me go based on my the humanitarian grounding because I wasn't, I was not well. So I'm sorry, before that, I, I mean, there's a risk. There's a risk that that also, that public international support isn't there for that to produce a backlash. Um, if, if the accusation is that you're in collaboration with a foreign government. And in fact, there has been foreign intervention. I mean, that's not a fabrication, even though if it's leveraged opportunistically. Um, was there a risk in any of that? I mean, is that something that, you know, that you considered or were concerned about? Well, um, that's what I was mentioning. If it was only coming from particular Western communities, that would be there. But my the support for me came from very diverse societies and also um as I said, um, intellect, intellectuals that ideologically the regime supports, like Chomsky and um, and also some of the Islamic scholars, had written individual letters, not just signed a petition, but had written letters in in my support or had written op-ed pieces, and that to them was it would it would make it too costly. Particularly if something happened to me after my hospitalization, I was actually quite sick. Then. It would be too costly for them in in that sense, so they let me um, they let me go. But usually they want to get something out of. For instance, they they very uh, they would tell me that I was a very costly costly person because most of my documents were in English and they had to translate it in order to be able to use it, and so as though it was my fault that they helped me and and that it was my fault that I wrote things in English and now they have to translate it. So yeah, the campaign played a major role, but it was it was also the kind of mobilization that happened, and and to some extent also, as I said, my age, um, and the fact that I didn't while I was there. Yes, I accepted that I have written books and I've worked on issues, and I uh, defended my right within the Iranian constitution um, because none of the things I had done based on law not the revolutionary guards interpretation was against the law. I was very concerned that, you know, my academic research is, was my, I was entitled to do it. And in fact, when they let me go, they told me I'm free to do, to go back to Iran or do research on any topic I want, except women and politics. I told them <laughs> part of the acad- academic rights is that you cannot tell me what I can or cannot research on. <laughs> so, so wait, but even though your file is still open, 
that means you can travel to Iran again, though, of course, you'd be surveilled. Well, they told me that I can go, but of course, they very well know that I cannot go when my file is open. Um, they have um, given me imprisonment and I had uh, uh, asked for appeal. I don't have the results of the appeal yet, but that was just, uh, I think that was in theory, they were telling me that. But uh, in reality, I cannot go back, at least for now, because I don't want to enter Iran and put in jail again. Even prison is not exactly the hotel anyone signs in for. No, I mean, it's... it's um notorious for its conditions. And we're certainly grateful that you were able to come back. I just, you know, just something to, to think about. Um, there is a, this, these conditions merit um, extreme scrutiny. And at the same time, so much of the critique right now in the political climate that we're in, when we see that the U.S.'s president-elect is eager to undermine um, the rapprochement, the nuclear deal, uh, with Iran, that the opportunity to, to, to use these campaigns in, in ways that are not sincere, in ways that are not concerned with academic freedom, but in pointed opportunistic ways, should that inform the nature of our campaigns and our scrutiny? And if so, how? Well, that, that's not an easy question to answer. Yes, the campaigns are used sometimes by um, Western governments who want to undermine Iran. But there are two things. Firstly, if a government is um, rooted and, uh, in the, in this, uh, in their, with their nation and they have the support of nation, they cannot do that. We haven't forgotten what happened in Venezuela when they busted the president and the people and American President Bush recognized the new um, the, the leader of the coup, but the people poured in and brought the president back. So if a, if a state is popular, it will be difficult for the Western or any other enemy state to undermine it. That's number one. Secondly, just because, for instance, uh, we know human rights issues have always been used um, very politically by many of the Western states, but that doesn't question that doesn't uh, we shouldn't question the nature of the human uh, human rights because the Western state um, use it to their advantage uh, um, and not really across the world. And so, in 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 that way, I think with this kind of campaign is the same. We can't give we can't ignore the fact that people are put in jail in this way. Look at what is happening in Turkey. And so we we still have to we have to run the campaign. We have to show that there is another form of globalization uh, happening, which is connecting people across the world, where people re recognize that the rights of um, people in one context is is related to their to their own rights in other contexts. So it it is not an easy question, but it's one that each in each context we have to be very careful how to and strategize in a way that may uh, make it difficult for people to use it um, in a negative light. But then on the other hand, is we can't just do nothing and, and because it may be used by a state in a negative way, we don't object to this kind of treatment because that also plays in the hand of oppressive states. So there is to balance out and uh, in each case devise strategies that best can help um, the rights 
of citizens, but also to protect um, uh, to protect human rights and the right of the states uh, in this uh, climate. No, I mean, what you touch on is something that human rights practitioners should be grappling with, right? Is on the one hand, you're protecting a principle, you're protecting an individual, you're protecting some sort of bodily integrity um, or, you know, stability and protection. On the other hand, because this discourse is so immersed in a, a, um, in a problematic context, in ways that it is manipulated, it puts you in a position of how, you know, having to figure out how to navigate in a way that upholds the principle, but doesn't, un, you know, doesn't inadvertently, you know, undermine an, a, another principle simultaneously. And I, there is no, there is no magic bullet. I agree with you beyond doing that work on a case by case basis, being very careful, um, scrutinizing, self-reflexive, um, doing one's research, um, and being in collaboration with both, you know, the stakeholders and the marginalized groups that will be at risk of deciding what that means. But, and also, you know, at, at the very, very least, um, not resorting, um, not resorting to any sort of default just because, um, but to examine what that means. Um, yes, that's that. These are complex issues, but as I said, complex issues um, um, demand more closely examination. But I don't agree that um, just because our campaign or statements may play in the hand of states, uh, imperial states, as to use the concept. We cannot just stop not uh, not promoting human rights and the, the rights of individual. And I think that's the important important aspect. And as a, also as a researcher, we really have to have an area of research to, to look at all these other campaigns and and issues of naming and shaming and its impact. And I think, as far as I know. Um, this naming and shaming has worked in in many cases, but also um, overall, you look at how this opens up discussions on human rights, both for human rights, but also questioning how often um, states that have interest in prom- promoting um, the abuse of human rights for their own purposes have come under questions. So I think we need to look at both of those things simultaneously to engage in. The more people know and are, are aware of the complexities of issues, the less both for the oppressive state in, in the Middle East or uh, imperialist state in in other contexts can, can use these issues to promote their own agenda. So I think it's very important to support this um, the human rights campaigns, but not in a not just simply just going ahead with campaign, but always reflecting on what has happened in an individual case, but also in a collective way of overall looking at various campaigns and what has worked and, and how it, it has advanced or, or not in any case, the cases of human rights abuses and academic freedom in this context. I I really couldn't agree with you more. And I uh, didn't mean <laughs> to suggest at all that we should be wary of these campaigns, but instead touching on just how difficult it is that even, you know, this basic 
concern with human rights becomes, um, even in that moment, risky. And yet at the same time, it's also an opportunity uh, for learning. It's a provocative moment um, to ha- be having these discussions. Um, and it also touches on something, you know, something of, of a, a particular literature, about the meaning and value of human rights and whether because of their politicization they actually become counterproductive or if in fact they remain uh, valuable. So this is both, you know, in, in, in a form of practice, but also in a form of scholarship, certainly scholarship I'm concerned with, these things all become uh, very relevant and, and issues that your very experience brings to life vividly and powerfully.